Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Created for Connection, a podcast that explores the way we become isolated from one another, but how God moves us for connection with Him and with each other. In today's episode, we interview Hannah McMullen about the importance of hard conversations. These conversations are often necessary to being known and connected. In particular, Hannah shares her own stories about growing up as a black woman in a white culture and how race became a difficult subject to talk about. To everyone listening, we're glad you're here. Hey everybody, welcome back to Created for Connection. I'm your host, Kevin Shelby, and I'm here with my co-host, Paul McMullen. Hey Paul, what's going on, man? Hey Kevin, I'm doing well. It's it's like 80 degrees here in Dallas, December, what is it, December 9th? Or December tenth. Anyway, it's relevant to talk about dates on a on a podcast because nobody <laughs> listens to it the day that you record. Right. right. But I'm like literally sweating here in Dallas. That's kind of disappointing. That's uh, actually going to be a marker for people to know how long it took you to edit this thing and drop it. So <laughs> well done. Uh, oh shoot. Yeah. No, it's seventy nine degrees in Memphis as well. So mm. that is unfortunate. I love yeah. the cold weather. I love the cold weather. It means that, you know, hunting season is here. Yeah, uh, basketball season's here. Christmas is around the corner. Basketball season is here. I've got a kid playing basketball. Are y'all playing basketball too? Yes, we are. So both of my boys are playing basketball and I have coached my older son's team for the past four seasons. And so that's that's been an adventure. Wait. Not exactly ballers you know in in this this age group at this at the school that we're at so it's it's more of a learning experience than a, a winning experience <laughs> wait you're coaching you're coaching the team all by yourself yeah i'm i'm coaching well i mean some dads help me out yeah but you're you're leading it i am i'm leading i am forming these young basketball stars for the future Okay. My right. goal is to get them ready to maybe make a junior high team. <laughs> okay. And, and how's that going? Are you guys winning some games? We've only had one game so far this season and it was a close one. Um, final score 37 to four. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't ask me if we won or lost. So. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of things you can learn when you get beat by 33 points. Uh, oh, man. A lot of character formation happening. What did you tell your team after that shellacking they took? Well, I it, the first two games of the season are considered practice games, and they help. Uh, they kind of rank you to where you'll be placed in a certain division. So I'm like, hey, guys, you know, I know we, we threw this game, right, so that we could be in a better but um oh man no that that was actually that that was the best we could do so four points yeah four points there was one time when i was a kid and we played i played on a team that i think only scored four points the entire season (laughs) which is it's got to be difficult to watch as a parent like what hope is there when the team only scores four points the whole season (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, at least your son is 
you know, he's outperforming you. His teams are outperforming you as in your childhood. So you're the, the McMullins are getting better at basketball. That's what we're finding Indeed. out. Uh, let, let's hope. Yeah. My younger son's team is uh, they, they won handily, which, you know, I'm not saying it's better coaching. It's just, you know, a little bit more talent probably in his age group. Oh, but you're not coaching that team? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. What do you, I heard a little, little hint of something in that comment. No, I, I just, I was for clarification purposes for the audience to really understand what it is you're saying. I wanted to know whether you were coaching the team that won as well as the team that lost the team that lost by 30 something points. You know, people just need to realize that um, my emphasis is on character formation. That's how you win in life. How do you take blows, you know, and to your psyche and, and keep going, keep that head held high. But, but Paul, you know, I'm a counselor and I read body language and I can see you're turned, you're kind of turned away from the camera, you're flush, you know, like I, I know you want to believe what you're saying, but you know, it's not fully convincing. Well, yeah, I, uh, I'm definitely not going to get hired by anybody for my basketball coaching <laughs> talents. <laughs> Man, I'm sorry. That's, that's brutal to be pouring your heart and soul out into these kids in all seriousness. And then, you know, to get beat like that. I know that's tough. We might, we've sat through some really tough games like that. So, um, well, we've got another game tomorrow, so I'm sure everybody will want an update next, yes. next time we record. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, so that being said, I think this is a good transition into um, our guest for today. And you know what? Like, this is family for you, so I'm going to let you introduce Hannah, if you would. I, I will. You, you just said her name, but that's okay. Um I am thrilled to welcome my sister-in-law, Hannah McMullen, to the podcast. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. I feel very honored. I am super excited for you to be here, too, because we have had lots of really enjoyable conversations uh, offline through the years. Uh, you, you are a professional social worker. You, you do therapy as well with that. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of uh, some of the people you see and, and what that relationship is like? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I've been working in mental health for the past um, maybe 10 years. <clears throat> um, so right now I'm working at a little private practice group, actually with Kevin's brother, Jeremy. He's right across the hall from me, so it's kind of fun. I feel like I see Kevin, although I, it's actually his brother all the time. Um, but right now, the population that I've been really focusing in on um, is young adults, mainly women. I really am trying to narrow my focus to African-American women or girls, um, even more specific uh, transracial adoption. So I'm getting a, a, I'm doing a training on brain spotting with adoption next month that I'm really excited about. And um, that's also specific to my personal story. So I was adopted into a white family 
when I was a little baby. So, and I'm, I'm not white. You guys can't see me. I should probably clarify that. I'm African-American and I have big poofy hair. Um, so that's just a little bit about what I'm doing right now. Just working with, with all, all sorts of people, but trying to focus in on the black community here in little bitty Arkansas. <laughs> um, thank you so much for that. And so this is kind of crazy because you were married to my brother and then you work yes. with Kevin's brother. So. Right. Yeah, we're right. all basically family here. Exactly. <laughs> can we just can we just talk about how your brother Eric uh roped somebody into marrying him and and she seems amazing too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> she is amazing. Yeah. And uh let's just say uh, many prayers were answered when Hannah came along. I yes, lots of prayers. Hannah, you are you are a true blessing to the McMullen family. Thank you. I love being a McMullen. It took a long time. I don't know if Paul remembers. There was like a five-year time frame where um, Eric had his head up his butt and <laughs> didn't quite know what he was doing, but <laughs> he figured it out. He's pretty cool now. <laughs> yeah. That's just a, it's a family trait. What can I say? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I I just would would love to to hear more about your story, Hannah. Um, you know, one of the things that's helpful, I think, is to kind of give that background as we get into talking about some of these things today that we're planning sure. on about. But so, you know, the early part of your story, as you talked about earlier, was that you um, you were adopted into a white family. And I, I'm just kind of curious about your childhood and what that was like for you. If you could talk, talk to us about that for a little bit and um, share with the listeners what, you know, what's that part of your story like? Yeah, for sure. So like I said, I was adopted when I was six weeks old. Um, my parents are both white. They have four children that they had biologically, so they're all white. And then they adopted me and they've also, they had also adopted my brother who's African-American. So there's six of us total, four white kids, two black kids. Um, honestly, growing up, I, it, it sounds, it sounds weird, I think, especially to white people, but I did not realize that I was black for a long time. <clears throat> a lot of black people kind of recall almost as like a coming of age experience of them realizing that they're black so um because I was in a white family I was in a white community predominantly white school in town I just kind of like I just didn't have an awareness for being black um I also identified more culturally with the white community because that was what my family you know that was what they also experienced so um there were there were some times once I hit that awareness that realization the coming of age that I was talking about where it was it was really hard um uh I don't know there was some bullying and um experiences that forced me to face that part of myself so that was it was a good thing because it required me to go a little bit deeper but it also it was hard and when you talk about that 
coming of age experience is that something that is specific to adoption or is that something that's specific more to being african-american for me i think it was more about being african-american um i knew i was adopted my entire life mainly because i did to some degree know that i looked different and my parents talked about the adoption very openly from the beginning my brother who was also adopted asked tons of questions and was very vocal with the hard conversations um I was not as much, but I was there. And so I was, I was aware to some degree, but as far as um, the African-American part in me, that was what was more of um, around like the coming, like 13 or so years old was whenever that was brought to the front of my mind and something that I started to really started to face. And when you were, were that age and you started to face that, was that you said your brother was more more apt to kind of jump in on the on the conversations? Was that like was he just curious and wanted had a lot of questions? Was there strong feelings? What was that? What were those conversations? Yeah. So for him, he was very loud, very vocal, um, curious. Wanted to meet his birth parents. Wanted to know all of the things that probably make every adoptive parent just cringe and want to crawl into a hole. He, he wanted to know it all. And I did see my parents have some of those reactions of like fear and uncertainty and a little bit of threat. And so my response to that was to kind of quiet my, my voice because I didn't want to stir the pot anymore than it was already being stirred. So, um, you know, you guys on your podcast talk a lot about connection and going into those hard places. And for me, that was not something that I was ever comfortable with from the beginning. It was really, I saw that happen with my older brother and I saw how hard it was for my parents. And I, it's something that I've shied away from just for the sake of keeping peace. So Hannah, there's, there's a part of your story that you mentioned, there was some bullying and uh, related to race and some hard experiences that you had early on, especially around mm-hmm. that, that awareness time. Can you, can you share a little bit about that with us? Like what, what happened and what that was like for you? Yeah, for sure. And there, there's one story that I really want to share um, related to this. So whenever I was in eighth grade, I was sitting at the lunch table and it was homecoming that day. And one of my best friends was on the homecoming court and she was dressed up so nice because she was just going straight from school to the game that day. So she had on her like cute little outfit. And like I said, most of my friends in my community were white, white people. And so I was sitting at the lunch table. I'm the only black person. And um, there were those long tables where like if you're in eighth grade, you usually like leave a click, leave a space between like your click and the other click just because it's weird and everybody's awkward at that time. And so normally there would be like a space between us and then the next group. But <clears throat> on this particular day, a girl came and sat down right beside my friend group. And it was a little, it was, it was strange. Like we didn't know this girl. 
it was her and her friend. They were kind of whispering and giggling back and forth. We just kind of tried to like keep going as usual and talk amongst ourselves. But at some point during the lunch, one of the girls stood up and opened her milk carton and just poured it all down me. Like she just poured her whole milk carton down my, down, down me. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was confusing. I'll say at the time it was very confusing because we didn't know this girl. It didn't look like an accident, but it was also like why it it was just confusing on why a, a stranger would come and do that. Later that day, she went up to my friend who was on the homecoming court and um, she apologized to my friend and said, sorry, if we got any of the milk on you, we only meant to get it on Hannah because she's black and she needs to sit with the black kids. So my friend told me that she was so, um, she was devastated. She was, you know, she's such a good friend and just hated that that happened to me. And you know, she was part of it too. Um, she felt bad that the girl apologized to her. It was just, it was a, it was a, you know, just a really tough time. Um, and there's, there's more to that, but that was one, one experience, probably the biggest one that was blatantly like bullying. There's been microaggressions, but that was probably the first experience where I where I thought I'm black and I'm sitting with the white kids. Like it started to make the wheels in my mind turn of like, maybe I shouldn't be sitting here or um, I don't feel connected to a lot of the black people because I don't know them. They're, they don't live in my neighborhood. I don't play soccer with them. I'm, my families aren't friends with them. And so it, it kind of just like, just made me start questioning like, where do I fit in here? So, man, that that is terrible. I can't believe that. You know, and I, I mean, I remember, I remember not something that blatant, but I remember those types of things happening with, um, with kids that were black at our school and, you know, and then hearing stories since I've become a counselor where that, mm-hmm. that kind of behavior is still even now more common than what people realize. And how how damaging and hurtful that can be. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that story with us. What um, as, so so you start to become aware and uh, of of your race and you you're wrestling with being in um, culturally feeling different than people mm-hmm. that look like you, right? And so like what, what did that do in terms of identity formation as you're going through high school and then maybe even into the early years of college? Sure. Yeah. So to finish up that story, cause I think it ties in with what you're asking here is after that happened, my friends really wanted to go to the principal and tell them what happened. They wanted this girl to have some sort of consequence for that action. And so we, I did not want to go. I was embarrassed. I, I thought, let's just, you know, let it slide. So we did go to the principal because my friends said they would go with me if, if I went. And 
we told the principal what happened and just, you know, hoped that he would understand, empathize, really bring some sort of discipline. But I remember his response and he really brushed the whole thing off and said, well, it's okay because Hannah's not really black. And I just remember feeling tiny. I felt like, I felt even more confused. We went to this like stronger, wiser, other figure in my life, you know, the principal who I, I, I really had a lot of respect for. And I felt minimized and um, just confused by that. And so following that experience throughout the years after that, my response in experiences that were smaller, like microaggressions that were not someone blatantly pouring milk down me were to keep my mouth shut, um, not, to, not to say anything, not to have the hard conversation because I tried that with my principal and it really, it, it didn't work. It didn't, didn't provide any source of connection. And so since then, well, from then until recently, I would say, my response has been to just kind of laugh or when someone does say something that actually stings a little bit to just suppress it or repress it or brush it under the rug and pretend like it's not there and not have that conversation of saying like, hey, that actually kind of hurt my feelings or addressing it somehow. Um, my response has just been to keep quiet. <clears throat> I, I'm still... I'm still struggling with that response that you got um, from the principal. That were you were some of your friends with you when he was talking to you? They were, yeah, and they were even more infuriated. My friends, my friends had my back for sure. They were so mad that he didn't he didn't meet me in that dark place of um, of hurt. I can see how that. And, and this is eighth grade, right, Hannah? Right, yeah. Okay, and, you know, I th those were formative years for me as well in terms of, in, in terms of developing ways of coping that I, I'd want to change, you know, as, as an adult. But those are just like, when you start to learn, how do you deal with the pain that you're experiencing? So that's when you started to learn, like, hey, I guess I just have to laugh this off. I can't. I'm not going to get good responses if I confront this head on or like you said, have, and, and we're bringing up the, the idea of a hard conversation because we want to ask you about that. Um, as we continue the story, how do we, how do we have those difficult conversations as a way of pushing through to greater connection? But here it's just like, it's in the midst of pain and needing help and then having this really terrible response. Well, and having a hard conversation in that moment with an authority figure, you know, saying something so stupid is, it's not, it's not possible, you know, like you have no choice, but to kind of shrink into the shadows and just take it. Cause the alternative is, you know, you could put yourself in a position of being in trouble uh, for responding, you know, in a way that he might not like, which is, that's where there's an abuse of authority by just kind of saying whatever you feel or think. I mean, I'm ticked and I, I want to go confront this principal right now. But. <laughs> well, 
thank you guys. I mean, I appreciate, I appreciate y'all's empathy and just you guys joining me in that. Um, and I, I do think that for a lot of my years, those kinds of responses, that, that touchstone memory or that first memory that I had of opening the door for the hard conversation, getting shut down has led me to, like I said, like build up these little walls between me and whatever said person hurts my feelings, um, specifically about race. And so it's like every time there's a comment about my hair that's a little bit insensitive or whatever it is, I just either subconsciously or somewhere in my body, it's, it starts to build up this brick wall and it creates separation between me and that person. And I'm wondering, Hannah, is that not just with acquaintances or people that you, you know, don't have a relationship with? I'm, I'm wondering if that's also with people that you're close to, that you're friends with or family Oh, I would with. say even more so with my friends and family. I'm, I'm like almost 100% talking about friends and family. That's what makes it difficult. When a stranger says something or a loose acquaintance, I do feel like I can just kind of shrug that off and it it's something that I, I can move forward from. Most of these microaggressions that I've experienced are with some of my best friends, some of my family members. I mean, even my husband, Eric, y'all know how, um, no, I mean, he's great, but like <laughs> we have had some hard conversations. Um, he's also a white, he's a white man and he is probably the best man I know just in general we have had some really, really hard conversations about race. Um, and part of that is because I don't want to build up a wall between me and him. I don't want to put bricks on a, a separation between me and my husband. So it's, it's something that I'm working to do is taking some of those bricks down and also like giving myself permission to share more and have hope that I won't get shut down the way that I did before. I do want to say, I, I feel like the, there's a, a happy ending to that story that I told. So earlier this year, I was doing just some of my own like inner work and inner healing, specifically about race and feeling kind of isolated in that. And that's what actually made me remember this story from eighth grade is I was thinking back to like, when was the first time that I really felt isolated through having a hard conversation and that memory came up with my principal. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, I could, I could message him and just, just kind of let him know like how I felt in that time, as, not as a way to blame or accuse or put him down, but just as a way to open the door to say, hey, here's how I felt here's, here's how I remember things happening and, um, just kind of give an opportunity really for me to speak up myself, not my friends speaking up for me, not me just suppressing or laughing things away, but for me to really feel empowered. And then hopefully in the future, speak up with other people too. So I did, I messaged him on Facebook. He's actually the superintendent now of the school district. So he's like, like a well-known leader in this town that I grew up in. He's very established and I'm sending him a message from 
the viewpoint of like a hurt 13 year old girl, you know? And um, I just thought, I don't even know if he's going to remember me. I don't know if he's going to respond. And he responded very, very quickly. The most, I'm I'm probably going to get emotional thinking about this, but it was the most heartfelt, kind hearted apology that I could have ever received. Um, it was long, like he, he didn't just send a few sentences. He took time to really, he remembered it. He remembered me. He, he owned, you know, the experience. And this was also 2001 when this happened. So it was before all of the, you know, racial awareness that we have now. And, um, his response was just so warm and just kind really like just understanding that it really it it did something in me it empowered me that now I can move forward and have these conversations and sometimes it can go well like it's not going to always end with me being minimized or shut down or whatever whatever I felt back then that that it can actually bring connection and um just true understanding. We want to take a moment and thank Wellspring Process Groups for sponsoring today's episode. Wellspring is an initiative Paul launched at the beginning of 2021 that provides people with a safe place to process the experiences they're facing in life. Whether you're going through challenges or transitions, or if you need a safe group of people to share life with for a season, we invite you to join a Wellspring Process Group. I've been in one of these groups, and it's been a life-changing experience for me. I encourage you to go to the show notes right now and contact Wellspring to find out when you can join a process group for yourself. How did that interaction with him change the way you feel maybe about him i mean i am imagining it's not like you have a relationship ongoing with him 20 years right. removed, but wh- what have you noticed about just maybe any transformation of how you perceive even that experience or your relationship with him what's that been like for now? sure i just want to like well honestly you know whenever you guys were talking about like how hard that story was to hear and just how mad and all these things. I do relate to that and I understand that. But honestly, now that I have gotten that um, reconciliation with him, that's what I remember. That's what I, that's what I feel whenever I think about that story is I, I feel the long thought out message that he apologized and shared his heart for as a grown man, you know, like I feel that now instead of the hurt from the milk being poured on me. Um, I feel more like love towards him. Like I want to say like his name's Mark Gocher. I just like want to acknowledge that he's just a great man who has made a mistake. And I think that that's honestly most of the time the experiences I've had where I've been hurt in regards to race it's really, really good people. It's my family. It's my friends. It's not out of hate. It's not out of racism. Um, most of the time, I think it's out of ignorance. And um, yeah, so 
messaging with Mark and getting that redemption has just helped me see that that's really what can happen with other people too. I, I love that idea that reconciliation eclipses the pain of, of what, what happened with the milk incident. Like I just, I love that idea as a picture metaphor for so many other things, you know, and, uh, and also the grace that you show him by receiving that, you know, that's a gift as well on both sides, you know, so I, that's amazing. And I'm really glad you finished the story, (laughs) you know, that, um, because what a, what an incredible end, but one of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, there's a gap between that reconciliation and the incident itself. And you, you kind of developed a style of walling yourself off. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the metaphors you've used, um, walling yourself off from others or, or laughing it off or shutting down. And, and those are pictures that kind of reference in a lot of ways, some of the things that Paul and I have been trying to address on the podcast, you know, so I'm curious about your specific uh, experience with living in that walled off space. Can Mm. you talk about what that was like for you? It was lonely. It was very lonely to, um, especially, you know, with what, with the topic that we're talking about being, one of the only black people most places that I go and feeling like I can't talk about that. That's lonely. Um, I remember I worked at a summer camp one year and at the end of the summer, the camp director came up to me and said, Hannah, I think if everyone here, if I asked everyone here what they thought about you, they'd say, we love Hannah. She's awesome. All these things so so nice all these really sweet things but if I asked them who is Hannah they wouldn't know they have no idea who you are and I just remember it it was hurtful like that was hard to hear him say that but it really has stuck with me because I think that all of those walls that I was referencing referencing that I've built up have kept people from knowing me that they they might see me and say oh she's so sweet she's so nice we love her but do they really know me well no and a lot of that is because of my own walls that I've built not because they don't want to know me but just because I've been kind of blocked away in my own little shelter and so in that isolation and loneliness at some point it it seems like you, you got pushed to having to confront that, having to say, okay, I can't live in that space anymore. How did that happen? That's a great question. I think a lot of that came through, this is going to sound, it's going to sound a little bit superficial, but a lot of that came through me owning my natural hair. So, um, for, for the longest time, most of my life, I would straighten my hair, which is what a lot of Black people do uh, or did. I think it's changing now. There's kind of a natural hair movement going on, which I love. But um, 
I, I decided to just own the hair that God put on my head and it's very kinky. It gets lots of tangles. Um, I could do a whole podcast just on hair, but once I started owning my natural hair, this was probably five years ago. Um, I think that it really, it gave me this confidence to just be me and let other people see that. I couldn't hide this giant poof ball that I have on top of my hair with my emotional brick walls that I had built up. It was out front and I, I was the one who put that hairstyle on my head. So I know it sounds kind of silly, but um, I think just owning really who I am is, is at the core of, of what I'm trying to say with the hair thing. Um, I think that that has allowed me to let other people in a little bit. Um, I, I think a lot of it started with some really good roommates that I've had. And then also Eric, who just asks a lot of questions and has a lot of love for me, no matter what my hair looks like, no matter what I'm thinking or feeling or, you know, where I'm at. So having someone who just jumps in and loves me regardless has helped break down some of those walls. You know, I, I'm sitting here like thinking, okay, you're saying this sounds superficial. It does not sound superficial to me. It sounds like it's very meaningful in that it's a metaphor, like owning my hair means I'm owning my identity. Part of my right. identity is my race. Right not hiding from my race or pretending like it's there or trying to make it something different. A lot of, I mean, the reason that black people started straightening their hair in the eighties was to look like white people, to have like long flowy hair that moved with gravity. So yes, it's, it's been more about just owning who I am as a person and, um, as like a child of God and finding beauty in how he made me. So what, when you, when you think about having conversations around race, even right now you're talking about like owning your hair and the importance of that to you and, and that, and owning your identity um, and race being a big part of that. What kind of emotions does that bring up as you're processing this, you know, and talking through it? You know, right now, I think it makes me, I get a little nervous. I also recognize that right now and a lot of times when I am talking about it, I'm talking to white people who, I mean, I know Paul pretty well, Kevin, I don't know you that well, but I've heard great things about you. I think you guys are probably two of the greatest guys out there, but even still, there's this like, I, I notice myself trying to be pretty censored or filtered is probably the better word, just not to offend y'all or whoever else I'm talking to who's most of the time white. I don't want to come across as though I know every Black experience that people have had or as though I'm, I don't know, better in any way or no more or that there's some huge difference between us like I want to come across as though we're all family like we said earlier you know we're all 
family here. So I get a little bit nervous about like, if I'm coming across as like this black know-it-all or something. And why would that be a problem? Like, I'm just thinking about if, if we had somebody on here, you know, and they were, they were talking about, you know, difficulty in ministry, some type of ministry, and they were talking about the struggles of being in that specific type of ministry. I don't think that they would have to be cognizant of talking from a place of expertise and knowing and, and having lived experience and all of that. So why do you think it is that, because uh, I, I have had conversations where I've had other people of color express a similar feeling. I have to be censored. I have to protect some things. Why is that different when we start talking about race? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause you're right. If it was, if it was just me talking about my profession or the town that I live in, there wouldn't be nearly as many emotions wrapped up into it. Um, I don't know. I wonder if it has to do with the history, just the 400 year history of racism in our country and how, like, if we're just being honest, it's been predominantly white people being racist towards black people. And that's a huge generalization. And there's so many exceptions to that. But I'm a black person and you guys are white people. And so whenever I've talked with Eric, at least, he doesn't, he, he it hurts him to be grouped into this, like, this history of white people that have treated mistreated black people like that's that's hard for him because his wife is black and he adores me and so to to be in that group doesn't feel good and I don't want to put you guys in that group and I don't want to put him or anyone that I'm talking to in that group so I think that that for, at least for me that filter comes up because I want to I want to love you guys and I don't want you to feel like you've done anything wrong in this you know 400 year history of racism yeah so you're protecting us from our own potential discomfort sure with your which i'm realizing is probably not my job the way that you're saying that now no i i i'm not trying to correct that i'm just i'm aware that you have to be aware of that that that's right. something that you have to be cognizant of when you interact with white people um, around this issue. And, sure. And it's not something that, as a white person, that I have to be aware of. I'm not forced to be aware of it in mm -hmm. the same way that you are, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I, it's just striking me that that's something that you have to, you've got to protect people from their own potential. Um, discomfort with how it feels to be somebody of color dealing with some of the things that you have to deal with right and I do try I, I'm noticing as you're saying this I do try to protect people especially if I know that what they have said that might have been a little off base or even just a conversation like this there's no hate coming from them and so I do want to protect them so they know that I know there's no hate, but I also firmly believe that it's not my job to protect them and their emotions, that whatever emotions come up in them are things that they probably need to face and work through. Um, 
but that, that, that there's still that part in me that wants to make sure that they're okay, that they're not not feeling um, accused or attacked. You know, I as you described that, Anna. I, I mean, I feel a lot of love from you for us in this conversation for two white guys in this conversation that that you do care for so a i just feel a lot of love and then and then there's the part of me that's like i i love you as my sister-in-law as part of my family and when you mentioned at first oh yeah it's it's predominantly friends and family that have said things that they probably were ignorant of i'm like oh gosh what what have i seen <laughs> and i'm sure there there have been times where i've have said something uh, or done something that i didn't i wasn't aware of but it could have been hurtful and i guess you know i feel this desire not to do that and i i want you to feel loved and supported whenever we're together and at the same time i'm like uh, you know oh i i feel kind of nervous about it too so it's like if there's this potential for this hard conversation um that we might have like you don't want me to feel bad um i'm kind of nervous i might feel kind of guilty and and ashamed or or defensive or whatever and it's kind of like what is the cost of having this conversation i wouldn't even call it a confrontation like we've talked about enneagram before on here and i'm a nine like a a avoider of all confrontations so <laughs> it's easier easier for me not to imagine things as confrontations but it's like what is the cost of having this a hard conversation and and then what is the what's the gain what do we gain from it if we push through what's your perception of that yeah no that's a great question just kind of like evaluating like what's it worth is it worth going to these uncomfortable awkward kind of clunky conversations like is it really worth it and I mean I think the cost the the scary part is that you know you start sweating and your heart starts racing and you get this like fight or flight response that everyone hates and it's anxious um and then you know there's that fear that like well what if they don't understand or what if they do get defensive what if they think that I'm calling them this or they're calling me this and just that fear of you know just confusion and disagreement conflict I do feel like the the gain or the benefit is I don't know if there's a more powerful word I mean I know it's in your podcast but just the connection or like I was saying when my camp director said if I ask people who is Hannah um, I think the benefit in having these hard conversations is people could answer that question. They could say, this is who Hannah is because we know her. She's not just someone who we've seen and would recognize in Walmart. She's someone who we, we know her heart. We know what she's about. And that, I think that's invaluable. I think that's what everyone really craves is to be fully known and fully loved in that. So having those conversations with family, especially friends, you know, like loose acquaintances. I'm, if I see someone in a gas station, they say, your hair looks crazy, whatever, you know, like, I don't know you, <laughs> that's fine. But if it's my best friend, you know, like I, I want to gain closeness and connection with her or whoever. And so 
letting letting myself get past that fight or flight anxious those body sensations to go to that deeper place with the loved person I think is more more valuable than not it gets you to a place of just knowing and just kind of regulating each other in whatever space that you go to So Hannah, I, I imagine too that there's this this part of you know engaging people in conversation around race and the the desire to maybe protect some things in that conversation has to do with the potential for loss of relationship for you. You know, that like I'm I have to risk something to challenge you on this or to share this place of hurt with me that I, that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. And, and by putting that energy forward, now I also am risking. So I have to risk the confrontation and I'm also risking losing relationship with you. Sure. Right. Which is the exact opposite of what you want in that scenario is to lose the person or to be disconnected from the person because of that conversation right so I think you're right that that's part of the big fear in that in in really any conversation not even just about race is like well what if what if we don't make it through this what if this is it for us and if it's someone you love you don't want to risk it because you want to keep them so you withdraw and then build up walls so they're still there but only kind of and because we've been hurt in in situations like what you described in your in your eighth grade story we have these experiences that that might teach us you do lose relationship or you do have this break and so uh it's not worth it but i i just as you described this sense of not being known um I, I just feel like I've felt that in ways and I, in, in some ways I'm kind of generalizing this, that, that feeling of the, when I don't share, when I don't go to those places and have some hard conversations, just in general, people are not known in the same way. And, and, and there's the, the sense of being overlooked. There's a sense of being alone in life. Even when you're around people, I think mm -hmm. it's a huge cost. Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's something that is kind of miserable and, mm -hmm. and it's like what if you have the courage to break through even you know and even even if you might have a, a conversation that doesn't go well for the chance that to be known and to be connected to someone else like isn't that worth it right absolutely yeah I think that the opposite of that over time and um just the walls it, it just creates a lot of depression which is a huge problem um in our society right now is when we aren't known even if we're in a marriage or in a group or wherever it is we can just feel so isolated and so lonely and depressed well hannah i think that you know, the story that you've shared with us, we've only scratched the surface. We, that's one of the difficulties of the limitations of a podcast is, you know, I guess we could have three hours worth of conversation, but, um, 
I'm not sure how I'm not sure how committed people would stay to listening. But, <laughs> but we're fair. not. Yeah, but we're not doing that. Um, and and we've said this before with others that we've interviewed. I, I think there is a bigger conversation to keep having here um, that people need to be able to listen in on. So I'm so thankful for your uh, how candid you've been and how open you've been and the stories you've shared. I'm interested, Hannah, in whether or not you have some resources for folks, some things that to point them towards and having these difficult conversations um, or even just talking about from your own experience, what was helpful. Can you share some of that with our listeners? If I were to, this isn't necessarily a resource, but if I were to just give my own two cents on that and what has helped me, I would start with your, um, with your, if you're married with your spouse, or if you're not with a close friend, have, have conversations about race in your house with your, with your close person. Um, just ask each other questions, even if, you know, you're both white, still trying to understand like where, where your viewpoints come from, what you think about different things. Um, even just, like growing up, what, how you viewed, how you viewed people of different races. So I would start there, honestly, just opening that door with your close people before even reaching out to your one or two black friends. Um, I've been that, I, I have been a lot of people's token black friend and I don't ever, I don't ever get upset when they reach out to me and ask what they can do better or, um, how they can, you know, use more political correct language. I don't even know all the political correct language, but um, if you do, you know, if you have close black friends in your life, just, just going to them with um, an open ear, just listening, like just asking if you can just listen to them and hear their experience without without even apologizing, like not coming in saying, sorry, I, I might've said something and I don't know if what I said or if I said it, but, I, but just like listening to them and hearing them out. Um, I'm trying to think of other resources. I'll have to think on that and maybe I'll send some to you guys that you can add in. Yeah, we can put Absolutely. it in the notes. What about Hannah, if, we, if you think about, if you're the one um, approaching a difficult conversation that you need to have with someone else. Maybe you're needing to confront somebody or, or there's something that maybe even when you decided you were going to message the superintendent, how do you gear yourself up or how do you overcome those internal barriers to go ahead and, and have those sort of conversations? Are there, is there anything that you would suggest to people? Yeah. Um, I would suggest, first of all, breathing, like literally just taking some deep breaths and getting a long, long exhale to get your body kind of in more of that calm state. And then also when, when having those hard conversations, and I don't think this is just about race, but going in, if it's someone that you love with the knowledge that most of the time, it's not about hate. They're, they weren't trying to hate you or hurt you. Um, they were probably ignorant. With my with Mr. Gocher, the superintendent, 
He was not trying to hurt me. Uh, he was not racist. He just didn't know. And I think that's the case with most situations where there's a, a good, healthy relationship. So just going in with with that underlying foundation that they they probably weren't trying to hurt you. They probably weren't malicious and bad. Um, just assuming that there was love that was presented in a way that felt hurtful for whatever reason. What are some things that people might avoid if they're approaching a difficult conversation, whether about race or something else? Is there anything that you would say, yeah, you might not want to do it this way? It's hard for me to think on that because I'm, I'm trying to think of most of other like listeners asking a black person, but I am, I'm thinking of it. Like usually I'm the black person. So what I have done wrong, what I would avoid that I have done wrong is speaking out of being triggered. And that's really only come up with Eric (laughs) because like I said, most of the time my default is to keep my mouth shut. But when you're married to someone that doesn't always work. Um, So I, if I were to avoid something in the future on my end, it would be to take some time and not just react when I, I feel hurt, but to like slow down a little bit, kind of the whole breathing thing. Um, I would avoid, yeah, just like the reaction of like, how dare you kind of thing. That's hard. That, that, that's probably a whole nother thing to talk about though. Yeah, I think that I think it is. Um, I really appreciate your idea of slowing down and breathing and paying attention to how your body is responding in the moment and that, you know, it your body is probably telling you a lot of things about how you're what you're internally feeling, what you're, mm-hmm. what you're in the process. And, you know, if you if you've got all this energy built in, it's going to affect the way the conversation might go. Um, I remember again, a conversation outside of race, but a confrontation that I had to make where I actually found a friend and I was like, can I practice saying to you what I need to say to this other person? Cause this is, I don't want to do this, but I need to say this. And so he was like the, the stand in and, and gave me feedback about how I said something. And, and most of it was like, yeah, you need to probably say that in a stronger way for me. For other people, it might be like, yeah, you might want to tone it down. A tone bit. it down. I mean, but I, you know, I'm being way too political. So yeah, for Kevin, it would be like, eh, tone it down a little bit, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, practicing. one thing that I, I like the idea of practicing and, and part of that potentially is, you know, one of the things that I, I tell people, and this is really for any kind of conflict that you might have, but um, when, when someone's offended, your intentions don't really matter at that point. Like that, the explaining your intentions does not bring about reconciliation. An apology does, you know, um, you can say I didn't intend to, and most likely they know you didn't intend to hurt their feelings, but it did. And acknowledging that and, and stepping in from a place of empathy and saying, oh, I see how that could have hurt you is the best way to bring about reconciliation. Um, rather than being defensive and saying, well, I didn't mean to, for it to come across that way. And you're, you're being ridiculous, you know, 
So I think having these types of conversations means stepping in with humility and being willing to sacrifice what your intent was and step into empathizing with, with the person you're, you're having that conversation with. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Hannah, thank you for, for taking the time today to join us and to, to share all this with us. I know that people are going to be really blessed by this conversation and probably challenged as well. Um, And so any questions that we have that we get from this podcast, we're just going to send them directly to you and let you handle it all. Uh, (laughs) Sweet. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) We, uh, we welcome questions, feedback, anything people might want to send our way as we're we're trying to address some of the hard things that we find in relationships and church and family. And uh, today certainly speaks to some, some difficult places that, that we're all, you know, if we're in relationship with anybody, we're, we're going to face challenging, difficult conversations. And I think this has been a good opportunity for us to, to learn, um, Hannah, from your perspective, what that looks like and better ways to do it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys. I've really enjoyed getting to talk with y'all and I think y'all are great. Love you guys both. Thank you so much, Hannah. Love you. And it's just been a joy to be with you today. And yeah, we've scratched the surface on several topics that uh, maybe at some point we could have you back and we could talk some more on uh, any one of them. So for all that are listening, uh, we just we just desire for you even if it takes some difficult conversation, even if it takes some discomfort uh, to be able to grow to these places where you stand up and you you take the chances uh, of having these difficult conversations with people in ways that we feel like can bring incredible connection. And that's our desire for all of us to feel more of that in our lives. And so just remember, uh, for everyone listening, you are not alone. hope today's episode has been helpful to you and that Hannah's story has challenged you both to think deeply about racial issues and to consider how difficult conversations can be a gateway to healing and connection. Please contact us through the email address in our notes section. Let us know what questions you have or where you've journeyed from isolation to connection. A special thanks to Cheyenne Matters for producing our music and thank you to Wellspring Process Groups for sponsoring this episode. Creative for Connection has been helpful for you. Please drop a review on whichever streaming service you're using. And please, share with your friends and anyone you think might appreciate these conversations. We'll see you next time.